Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stammel Major. In this episode we're continuing the book Rakundra's First Cruise by Arthur Ransom. This is part two of the reading and we're on chapter four. Now if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for five dollars a month you can help support the podcast. Now on with the story. Chapter 4. Riga to Runo By nine in the morning of the 21st, the wind had shifted to the west. There was sunshine, and in the river, the coasting schooners were getting underway. So we hoisted sails, learnt that our windlass was useless, got our anchor by hand, and made off out of the harbour for the mouth of the river. A heavy swell was coming in, there was still plenty of wind, and we were much annoyed to be held up by a hail from a man on the customs house quay at Dunamund. We had thought that yesterday's ceremony at Mulgraben had left us definitely cleared, but it seemed that we had to hand over here the certificate I had gotten from the Riga customs. The swell was so big that I was more than half afraid of smashing Rakundra against the pier. The man explained by shouts what he wanted, and we sailed as near as I thought we safely could wrapped the certificate in a rag with a bit of chain as a make-weight and threw it on the pier as we cavorted past. The man grabbed it, opened it and waved his hand down the river. We were free. Rakundra switched back over the swell, taking only a drop or two of water over her nose as she dipped and then lifted easily enough, but taking fountains of water through her centreboard case, the top of which had been left uncorked. That, however, we put right in a minute or two. And then, just as we cleared the moles, the wind suddenly fell away, almost to nothing, while the swell remained, and we rolled about so uncomfortably that only iron-fastened wheels prevented the seasickness of the entire ship's company. It was half-past eleven before we passed the first bellboy. Half an hour later, the wind died altogether, and we wallowed in a dead calm while the booms banged impatiently from side to side, and the two mechanical logs, a German and an American, both second-hand and quite useless, which we were testing one against the other, hung perpendicularly like plummets in the sea. We had a rather hesitating luncheon, and then at 2pm the wind, which had taken no notice of my efforts on the accordion, gave us another little puff, in response, I believe, to my rendering of Spanish ladies on the whistle. For two hours, Rakundra pointed north, and when we threw matches overboard, she left them undeniably astern. At four, we were in another desperate calm. At 5.30, I bathed and swam about the ship, with Riga Lighthouse still in the sight bearing south, and the second boy, the Howling Boy, ten miles out bearing a little west of north. We had a few more slight puffs, and then calm, and then a few more puffs, and then the sun went down. A little land wind came out to the southeast and carried us at 8.40 past the second boy. We were now fairly at sea, with the wind holding. At 9.20, we boomed out a spare staysail as a spinnaker. At 10 o'clock, the others turned in, for the first time, not on paper and in dreams, I had the little ship alone in my hands, in a night of velvet dark below and stars above, pushing steadily along into unknown waters. I was extremely happy. At midnight, the wind swung round to the northwest, and for a moment, I thought of calling up the ancient to take the tiller while I shifted sails. Then I thought I might as well have a try by myself and call the others only if I could not help it. I lashed the tiller and handed the boomed staysail. Then, with all the sheets in, we were back again on our course, close-hauled now, and I was at the tiller, listening anxiously to know if the others had heard my hurried running to and fro on the deck. 
But if Rakundra had been a sentient thing doing her best to help me, she could not have done more than she did. The whole operation had gone like clockwork, and the others had heard nothing, and did not know of the change in the wind, or even of the wind's increase until 4.30am, when the ancient came on deck and wondered what I had done with Riga Light, which had seen close aboard when he had gone down to his bunk. During the night, the binnacle light blew out again and again, and finally refused to be relit. I steered by the North Star, which I kept bobbing about between the main top and the peak. Our compass had not been adjusted, and a number of bearings I had taken on our way out had made it pretty clear that we had a lot of easterly deviation. Theoretically, our course should have carried us eight or ten miles east of Runo. Practically, I was sure that we should pass it much nearer, but as the ancient had small belief in deviation and said the compass was right enough, I was prepared to try it out. After the ancient came up and took the tiller, I hung about the deck to see the dawn, which came up with fiery red splashes over a nickel sea. With the dawn, the wind backed to the southwest, when we eased off the sheets, after which I went below and was instantly asleep. At 7.30, I was wakened by a feeling of excitement on board and was told that Runo Island was in sight. I ran up on deck to see a low line of trees with a pale red lighthouse above them, exactly over our bows. The easterliness of our compass was proved beyond a doubt, for even the ancient could not suggest that we had been making leeway against the wind. But interest in this technical point was sunk in our delight at securing this, the most romantic island in northern Europe, at which we had so often looked on the chart that all summer had hung on the wall of my room. The spot on the chart which long ago, sailing further north in Slug and in Kittywake, we had so often promised ourselves to visit as soon as we should have a seaworthy ship, was becoming a reality before our eyes. I suppose most readers of this book have already lost the ecstatic joy of sighting land at sea. Yet no, I do not believe that even for the oldest mariner that joy can ever fade. It is always new, always a miracle, never in the common ruck of absolutely predictable events. Islands especially stir the blood, and Runo, that lovely place over 50 miles out from Riga, and nearly as far from the Estonian coast with its Swedish seal hunters, using words that in Sweden have become archaic, living in the 20th century a life of medieval communism, a place at which a steamer calls but once a year, coming up out of the sea before me, sought and found, however incorrectly, by my own little ship, gave me moments of unforgettable delight. The sunlight strengthened. The dark line seen through the binoculars became visible forest. The pale red tower began faintly to resemble the very inaccurate drawing of it, which, as a guide to mariners, is tucked away into the drab mainland of the English charts of the Baltic. Under the forest appeared white lines and splashes, which the ancients said were breakers, but the glass showed to be sand. Then, as we came nearer, we could see the deserted beach and the broken-down wooden pier, not to be visited by any steamer until July next year. There is an anchorage off that pier in westerly winds, but it is unsafe if the wind blows on shore. Just now, the anchorage was protected by the southern end of the island, and we steered directly for the pierhead. I took the tiller while the ancient worked the lead, and we sent silent thanks to the Baltibor for lending it. Three fathom, called the ancient. Two, two and a half, two... Two, two and a half, one and a half, then down with the staysail, in with the sheets, round into the wind, and as she began to go astern, let go. The chain rattled slowly out, and Rakundra, pulling up to it, had found her first anchorage in foreign waters. 
The wooden pier, which was in two pieces, the middle part of it having been washed away, was 50 or 60 yards from us. On the pier head was a huge rusty anchor, a trophy from a wreck or a keepsake from some vessel that had had to slip her cable because of some sudden change of wind and had not been able to come back and claim it before the islanders had fished it from the sea. Behind the pier lay sand dunes, behind them enormous pines bigger than any I have seen even in the forests of Russia, and behind the trees the upper works of the lighthouse, an ugly structure of red iron tubes. The anchor and the lighthouse and the wrecked pier were the only things that spoke of man. The shore was deserted. There was not a human being to be seen. We sounded our foghorn, thinking that maybe they would send out a boat. Nothing happened, and half doubting if, after all, we had found the proper anchorage, we unlashed the dinghy, turned it over, and with the spare staysail halyards lowered it into the sea. The cook and I tumbled in and pulled ashore. The wind showed signs of changing, and we knew that if it veered farther to the south, we should have to be off again without delay. Our landing on Runo was like a page from Robinson Crusoe, or a child's dream of desert islands. We rode in past the broken end of pier, and in shallow water tied up to the rotting timbers of the part of it that ran out from the land. We climbed up and, stepping carefully over the crazy planking, came to the sandy shore. Hummocks of sand rose before us, but north and south of the strip of sand we could see rocks out in the water, and there, almost on the edge of this tideless sea, were those gigantic pine trees growing out of a thick mossy carpet rich with brown and scarlet mushrooms. On a pair of rough wheels made of solid wood without spokes rested one end of a felled tree, rough-trimmed. But as we went in under those tremendous arches of the forest, there was an uncanny absence of any human sound. The sand dunes hid the pier. The towering trees hid the iron lighthouse. There was nothing but the green-carpeted forest, cloisters for giants, and that great trunk on wheels exactly like those that must have been made by the first wheelwright in the history of our race. Man, should he appear, might be of any kind. Almost we looked up in the treetops for pygmies with their poisoned arrows and watched the trunks of the trees for the feathers of one of Fenimore Cooper's Indian braves. And then, slowly wandering towards us, knocking off the heads of the mushrooms with a stick, came man indeed, the governor-general of the island, a short, lame, elderly man in blue canvas clothes and a seaman's cap the keeper of the lighthouse, to whom the men of Runo came for a casting vote in all debates. He has no official authority, no laws confer power on him or limit it, but he is the keeper of the light, the guardian of the one piece of civilization imposed on Runo by the mainland, the representative of those who do not live on islands, and I suppose tradition invests him with a sort of dignity. In old days, he was sent by a Tsar of Russia to keep the light on this little island in a sea surrounded on all sides by Russian territory. The men of Runo are Swedes, and a Tsar of Russia had driven their race from the mainland. But nowadays, the sea of which Runo is, as it were, the central pole, is no longer Russian. Its coasts are Latvian and Estonian. The Tsar is no more, and the Swedes of Runo can hardly think with any great humility of the two little nations which argue fairly bitterly, as to which of them should really own the island on which, indifferent to such politics, the Swedes live on, preserving their own way of life and their own customs in an odd kind of private Middle Ages, centuries removed from the modern competitive struggle of the continent. 
The lighthouse keeper greeted us. He had heard our foghorn, and since the people were busy with their harvesting on the other side of the island, had himself come down to meet us, and to warn us that the wind was changing, and that we must soon look to our ship. He knew a few words of English, but more willingly spoke Russian, which he knew well besides, of course, Estonian and Swedish. He was surprised to see us so late in the year, and on learning my nationality, asked with the embarrassing curiosity of foreigners, to whom this bit of our mingled foreign and domestic affairs is always hard to explain, Well, mister, and how is it with Ireland? This was the first of several such disappointments, for I had hoped in voyaging among these remote islands to be quit of politics for once, but I hid my feelings and told him that the Irish were settling their affairs in the Irish way, and then got him to talk of his own country. I knew already that on Runo, competition is almost unknown. Instead, there is a sort of ancient communism. The men of Runo are seal hunters, and at a later stage of our cruise, we met some of them actually at their work. Each seal killed belongs not to the lucky hunter, but to the community as a whole. The land has been divided into workable farms, and if a family increases, it cannot acquire fresh land. It merely adds the necessary room space to the farmhouse, and often does not even do that. If a son marries, he builds himself a bed which is set up in the room of his parents, and twenty years later, if his son marries and the grandparents are still alive, another bed is built. You can number the families in a Runo house by counting the double beds in the main room. There are 270 persons on the island. The women wear on holidays the national costume of old Sweden. Coming out of church on Sundays, they are devout Lutherans. They are as uniform as a procession of nuns. The men wear homespun clothes and sealskin shoes. Their morals are said to be very strict. I've heard that some years ago a woman offended against their code, whereupon they tried her by general assembly and condemned her to death. It was found, however, that not one of them was willing to kill her. So they fastened her in the bottom of a little old boat and set her adrift in a storm. The boat did not sink, but was thrown up on the Courland coast, and the woman, still alive, was found by fishermen, recovered, and, one is left to suppose, continued her wicked career on the mainland, where people are less critical. The lighthouse keeper told us that people were beginning to take an interest in Runo, that this year the steamer had brought them Mr. Pip, the Estonian foreign minister, and a very great Englishman, our own minister from Riga, but that these events did not much affect the islanders, who had never considered themselves Russians, nor indeed anything else than men of Runo, and were content to remain so and to be counted Estonian, seeing that their business, when they had any, was with Arensberg, that they caught their seals on the Estonian rocks, and that, after all, the lighthouse keeper had always been sent from Reval. He took us with him to see his lighthouse, where he posed for his photograph very nobly with the lighthouse behind him. It had been higher, he said, but the Germans had blown off the top of it, besides making a horrible mess of his house. Civilization had visited Runo after all. At the lighthouse we had a drink of fresh water, and then, as the wind shifted definitely to the south, had to give up thoughts of staying longer on the island, and hurried away over the thick moss under the gigantic trees, picking mushrooms as we went, and so to the broken-down pier. We were none too soon. Rakundra was bobbing up and down in a manner undignified for her, and the ancient had lowered the peak. Where the water had been smooth, it was already broken. We pulled out in the dinghy, getting well splashed on the way, hauled it on board, got our anchor, hoisted the staysail, filled on the starboard tack, and were off for Paternoster, 
and the entrance to the moon sound. Chapter 5. Runo to Paternoster. It was half past one when we got away, and as we were anxious to take no chances with the rocks on Runo's northern corner, we sailed due west for a mile before putting Rakundra on her course. I must point out here that until we reached Helsingfors, though our courses were duly set by compass, there was very considerable discrepancy between theory and practice. After the Runo landfall, I allowed a full point for easterly deviation in the neighbourhood of north, and this proved to be about right when, in Finland, we had magnets put in and swung the ship. But on other points the error was even greater. Our logs also were of small use for navigation. Of the two, the German log did not work at all, and the American, which we used, was a most pessimistic affair. Unless we were going at our top speed in half a gale, it registered a little less than two-thirds of the distance we actually covered, and if we were not visibly and sensibly churning along, the log seemed to lose heart altogether and registered nothing at all. I think it had begun life on a motorboat and had no patience with our old-fashioned but superior ways. Its remarks were of use only in giving us the roughest ideas as to what we had been doing. The wind was now south-southwest, but continued to back to south, and at 3.40 we brought the booms over. It was a fine day, and pleasant sailing, and whatever the log might say, it was clear enough from our own wake that we were steadily moving towards the Estonian coast. The only question in our minds was where we were going to hit and when. We did a lot of straightening up on board, drank coffee by the pint and ate huge quantities of food. We were all greatly cheered by our speed after the dismal experience of yesterday's calms, and the ancient began to think we should be in Reval tomorrow, and to talk of record passages. One time, said he, one time I crossed the North Sea in 24 hours under sail. Where was that? I asked. Uh, Harridge to the hook? No, said he, with a sail needle between his teeth, finishing the end of one of the halyards. It was from that place up at north of Scotland, like the Moonsund, where, where we're going. Pentland Firth? Aye, Pentland. Twenty-four hours from there to the Norwegian coast. Well, that's pretty good sailing. And I had my captain sick all the way. Yellow fever. That was how it was. We were in Mexico when he began ill, and I wanted him to go ashore. But he was Norwegian, and he would have it that back to Norway would put him right. And I thought myself, maybe the fresh airs will put the fever under. But it was not like that. Every day he grew worse. I wanted to put him into one of the American ports to put him ashore, but he wouldn't have it, and was all for carrying on and getting home to Norway. And we did carry on too. I can't tell you how long we were on the passage, but we had a west wind with us all the way till we were near the Irish coast. I wanted then to put through the channel and let him see a doctor at Southampton or one of them places, but he wouldn't have it, and, sick as he was, set a course round by the north of Scotland. "'Tis the best way for Norway,' he says, and we came through the Pentland Firth, and he was so bad that I was for hauling our wind and coming to Aberdeen, but he would have nothing of it. And the west wind held, and plenty of it, and the captain in his fever shouting whenever I spoke to him not to take a foot of canvas off her. And we made the Norwegian coast in 24 hours, and then we went into Christiansund, where he was from, and as soon as the anchor was down, he went ashore. And as he went, I told him I'd come ashore and see him in the morning. But it was not like that. I never saw him again, for he died during the night. I had set a course that, if the error of the compass was about what it seemed to be, should bring Macundra within sight of the well-lit coast to the west of the Paternoster lighthouse, so that we might learn our exact position in plenty of time, 
and was consequently delighted when at 10.15 we picked up a blinking light on the starboard bow. The ancient took the tiller while I ran down below for a stopwatch. I timed it, one flash every three seconds. I looked at the chart which I had spread out on the writing table in the cabin. No such light was to be found upon it. I looked again all along the coast of Osel. No, there was a four-flash light on Le Duniana and nothing else between that and Paternoster. I ran my finger across the chart, which I was lighting with an electric pocket lamp. Away to the west, far out of our supposed course, near the approach to Arensburg, a blinking light was marked, but the period of its flashes was not named. If it were that, then how humbled must be the pride of the navigator. I could feel the ancient waiting in the dark to hear me, having timed the light by a method, the stopwatch, in which he did not believe, admit that I did not know what light it was or where we might be. It was a most unpleasant moment, so I said nothing at all. What course? asked the ancient. Uh, east north east, said I, to give myself time. I had just remembered that there was yet hope for my navigation. We were working by the big German chart of 1915, the only comparative large-scale chart I had been able to get, but in the chart case was an English small-scale chart covering the Riga Gulf as well as much else, and this had been corrected up to the spring of this year. I pulled it out and spread it on the folding table under the lamp in the cabin, and as I looked from the yellow splash to yellow splash, lights are marked in this way, going from west to east along the Osel coast, behold, the very last light on that coast, before the light of Paternoster at the entrance to the sound was marked, I flash every three seconds, with the date of 1920. My expanding joy almost lifted off the cabin roof. I went on deck again, a different man from that cringing, worried navigator who was glad that the dark hid the doubt in his face. For some minutes, I said nothing. Then, with all the ease I could assume, I said lightly, as if it were nothing, Keep a lookout for a flashing light on the starboard bow. By changing our course, we had brought my first treasure trove to port. And then, I added, we should find another light to port with a white flash every second, and when that turns red, we shall have our course clear for the entrance. The ancient answered not a word, but there was a new warmth in the night air, a new solidity in the floor of the steering well, and various other minor indications of rewarded confidence. I went below and smoked a most satisfactory pipe. We were not moving fast and it was three hours later before we had the other two lights, but I was secretly glad we were moving slowly because, confidence or no confidence, I did not want to try too much and attempt the moon sound in the dark. In spite of the evidence of the English chart, I was glad enough to have our course confirmed by meeting at 3am a steamer going southwest, which I knew must have come out of the sound. I took the hint and altered our course a little accordingly. A little later, the white light of Paternoster turned red, and then our last doubts were gone, and as the dawn rose, and with it the wind strengthened from the southeast, we found ourselves exactly in the entrance to the sound. Paternoster lighthouse on its island on our port, Werder on our starboard bow, islands and rocky coast stretching away behind us to the south and west, and before us, the sound itself. Well, that's the end of today's reading, and I hope you enjoyed it. It brings me so much pleasure to be able to read these books and to bring them back out into the light from dusty library shelves and uh, share with you the fantastic uh, stories which we're, we're seeing unfold here. 
This book, Rakundra's First Cruise, is 100 years old this year, and yet I think all of us are already able to see that with a great writer like Arthur Ransom, um, you've got some really special way of connecting through to people who love doing the same things we love to do out on a boat, enjoying themselves. So if you like this kind of content, if you want to hear more of it, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Five dollars a month helps to support this podcast, which goes out 20 times a month. But starting now in January of 2023, there's a whole extra series of books being read over on Patreon. Um, those are available for patrons of every level. So a whole extra series of books there in the same line and things I'm sure you'll find very enjoyable. So that's patreon.com forward slash the mariner to support the podcast and get your hands on those extra sailing books. Great. Well, thank you very much for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.